But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Reach Podcast. Today is a really cool episode and actually uh, one of my favorite ones so far. I interview Colleen Spees, who is a registered dietitian who works on a lot of our uh, nutrition and cancer trials. And she's doing some really cool stuff with the Garden of Hope in, in Columbus in Ohio. Uh, the Garden of Hope is this, is this garden that cancer patients and survivors, whether or not they're participating in research, can come and actually pick their own vegetables. So they have these this huge, uh, however many acres of a garden that the cancer patients and survivors get to come in and pick a variety of vegetables. And they also have a chef who teaches them how to cook right and how to how to use different cooking methods to, to choose healthier ways of cooking these foods and preparing them. So it's a really cool thing that they've got going on in, in Columbus. But they also do a lot of really cool research in this area. So we chat about some of the research they've got going on, particularly with one of their studies, the next study is a really cool one in that they're actually giving cancer patients and survivors uh, three ounces of red meat per day. And so it's a really hot topic right now, this idea of, of red meat causing cancer. And we talk a lot about that in this episode today where we chat about it's it's not a direct causation. There's some correlational stuff going on there. A lot of the studies are large epidemiological studies. So it's an association rather than if you eat this, this will happen. And so we really dig into that and kind of just chat through having a flexible approach to nutrition, both during and after treatment, and how we can apply general principles of, of healthy eating and, and lifestyle behaviors to, to these people's nutrition. And another reason this is a really cool episode for me is that uh, Steve Clinton, who is the MD and, and the oncologist that works on almost all of our, our prostate cancer trials, he uh, he stopped by in the middle of the interview. We were actually doing this at the Hope Garden. So you'll hear we're outside and uh, he stopped by the interview. So I pulled him in and asked him a couple of questions. And he's just a smart man and he's got a great perspective on exercise and nutrition in cancer care and you can just really tell that he values the role that they play in cancer care and he's really passionate about it so it's just great to hear his perspective on everything and i really enjoyed chatting to both of them i'm definitely gonna come back to colleen and kind of dive into a almost a nutrition myths episode and i'll definitely be picking steve's brain for for some more of the oncology perspective uh soon enough so look forward to those episodes soon and uh, for now enjoy this episode so 
let's talk a little bit about this. Well, before we talk about the Hope Garden, let's talk about some of your background and, and how you got into this because it's, it's running about four years now. Started in 2013. 2012 is when the Garden of Hope five years. opened. Yeah. So, yeah, so give us a bit of background about you, about how this started, your, your interest in cancer. Yeah, so a little background about me is uh, I've had a few careers in my time. So started out at Ohio State in undergrad in medical dietetics. Then I got my master's in at Vanderbilt in exercise science and health promotion. My mentor there was Jim Hill, who was at Vanderbilt, went out to Colorado. He's the guy who does the 10,000 steps and kept Colorado blue really? on the CDC maps for a long time. Yeah. Very Marikon cool. Marathon the move. Yeah. Great, great guy. So um, I studied under him at Vanderbilt. His wife's a dietitian, which is interesting. And I had a graduate research assistantship with him as the, in the clinical research center. And I was a bionutritionist there and helped out with some of his studies and did a lot of the metabolic testing and hydrostatic weighing and that kind of stuff on his subjects. And then I graduated and had my next life, which was um, having three kids and working <laughs> an array of different jobs and traveling a little bit with my husband's job and landed back in Columbus, Ohio. Boy, it's been 20 years now. And I was working part-time raising the three little ones that are now big ones. And in 20, 2007, my sister, who's a year older than me, come from a family of seven kids, um, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And being here in Ohio, and especially in Columbus, they pulled her in for genetic testing, thinking she must have a BRCA mutation at that young age and being relatively healthy. How old was she? She was 41 at the time. And so what we found after she went through genetic testing was our family's affected by an autosomal dominant gene mutation called Lee Fermini. And Lee Fermini syndrome is a cancer prevalence syndrome in which you have a mutation in the TP53 gene, which encodes for the protein P53. P53 is the guardian of the genome. It's a tumor suppressor gene. So if that gene's not working correctly, you're in a world of hurt. Because yeah. you got nothing to put the brakes on carcinogenesis when it starts to proliferate out of control. So long story short, our whole family was tested and this really explained a lot of years of going to a ton of funerals in our family. Um, with, you know, it being an autosomal dominant mutation, it affected, had about 50% penetrance yeah. in cancers. But the different thing about Lee Fermini is it's difficult to diagnose. They had an easier time with a pedigree in our family because my dad's one of nine, I'm one of seven. So, you know, you can kind of see where the hits are 50%. But, you know, nowadays kids have, people have one or two children and if one of them gets cancer, they think it's bad luck. They're not thinking maybe genetic mutation, yeah. right? And what we do know about genetic mutations, though, I need to clarify, is that still only across the cluster of what we call cancers, because it's not a single disease anymore. We know it's a cluster of diseases. What we know about that is 10, about 10% 10 are genetically, we think, linked. The rest is environmental. 
which leads to the Garden of Hope, right? So long of the story, long of the short of it is I had a brother die when he was 15. I was 12 of cancer. Wow. And we're pretty certain he had the Lee he had Lee and he had certainly the path that led to it with multiple cancers and died after five years of battling cancer. And then uh, my sister was diagnosed. The rest of us were tested. My dad had passed by that point. So he was, it, the lineage goes on his side of the family, paternal passing down of that gene. We can trace it back now. And then um, since that time, my brother who tested positive had not been diagnosed. And he's since been diagnosed with prostate cancer and T-cell lymphoma. Wow. So I was driven as a healthcare professional to go, well, first like, wow. <laughs> There's some serious guilt with watching other people in your family go through this and I'm negative, I have no idea why, but also is there anything out there that can help um, in terms of delay the progression of cancer, if you do have a cancer prevalence syndrome, to perhaps, you know, decrease the risk of getting multiple cancer or secondary cancer or recurrence, is there anything? So of course I turned back to my modifiable lifestyle behavior background, started doing some research and really couldn't find anything. At that point, um, that many years ago, there was only documented less than 500 cases, families of Lee Fermini in the entire globe. So I went back to get my PhD here at Ohio State. And when you're a dietitian working in nutrition, you just got to study under Steve Clinton. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you just got to. And I made an appointment with him. And it's who you know. I got in there. His clinical dietitian who's been with him for years, Beth Granger, I knew her for 20-some years as a dietitian. She got me an appointment with him. I went in and I started talking about this cancer prevalence syndrome and P53 and all this. And he looked at me and said, you're talking about Lee Fermini syndrome. And I couldn't believe he knew the name. You know, what? Yeah, what? yeah. For our listeners, uh, Steve Clinton is an MD, PhD from Harvard, one of the I mean, the sharpest, sharpest tools in the box, but it's just an all-around nice guy. And once he gets once he gets his mind set on something, he will go for it. So I'd imagine when he said leave a read, he just, he just went off on it. Oh, he did. And just what he knows. And it, uh-oh, we got a we truck We will pause going. as this truck so rudely interrupts our beautiful evening and, and our intervention. Oh. oh, honey. And that is the sound of... What can only be described as Columbus' squeakiest truck <laughs> driving away after our interruption. Driving past the survivors who are harvesting. So we'll get to that, but let's come back to Steve Clinton has just started to dig into the disease. And now you're having this conversation with you joining this team. Yeah, so Steve Clinton, he says Lee Fermini syndrome here when he was in Harvard. He was a friend of Fred Lee. Fred Lee actually discovered Lee Fermini, and it was during the time Dr. Clinton was at Harvard. So he knew the whole background. He knew how it was discovered. He knew it was a, started as Dr. Lee's hypothesis from just looking at data from these families that had kids with unusual and rare cancers coming in, adenocarcinomas and whatnot. He started just really paying attention to this 
these families that were coming in and looking at the cohorts. So um, long and the short of it is it was meant to be. I got my PhD with Steve Clinton and I studied P53 during that time and we were looking and talking the entire time about modifiable lifestyle behaviors that might again um, delay the onset of a cancer if it's going to happen perhaps uh, decrease the progression of a cancer or the aggressiveness if in fact when it is diagnosed early surveillance all those types of things so we were talking about it had some rich and great conversations and in 2012 the garden of hope was conceived mainly by leadership such as steve clinton over at the cancer center in collaboration with the college of agriculture here at ohio state um, and james care for life which is the outreach uh, and the community outreach services complementary from the comprehensive cancer center here at ohio state and they decided you know let's start walking the walk not just talking the talk and what that meant is you know we tell survivors all the time you know we know a primarily plant-based diet is a great thing we know that moving is a great thing and so they started the garden of hope which was a at that point about a two acre garden where cancer survivors could come harvest fresh produce at that point up to three times a week for free that's incredible absolutely incredible. incredible and we provided with that some education i got involved in 2013 when steve clinton called me and said you got to get out there you got to bring <laughs> your students you will love this living laboratory and um this is these are your people i think is what he said you know those they come out and harvest and they're moving and we want them to be squatting and teaching them safe ways to do that and we want them to be out here breathing the fresh beautiful air and after the first year we did um focus groups because you know we just kept hearing and hearing this just changed their lives being out here in this garden setting and the focus groups were fascinating because we thought they were going to say they're moving more and they go home and they're preparing and they're cooking again and they're doing some of the things they had let go with that you know fatigue from cancer and just their quality of life had diminished with the treatments and all that and really what they were telling us was yes it was some of that with physical health but there was a huge mental health component to this so they come out to this place and they actually termed it this group of survivors their urban oasis <laughs> Just amazing. And you know, where we sit, and I know your listeners can't see this, but you know, we have right here, we're sitting in the middle of this 261 acre beautiful farm called Waterman Farm, which is owned by the College of Agriculture here, College of Food and Agricultural Sciences here at Ohio State University. It is a living laboratory where experiments are conducted, and we have a view of the Comprehensive Cancer Center right there and a beautiful view of downtown Columbus right there and you turn to the right and you see cows dairy cows <laughs> it's incredible yeah so it's just this amazing place where they say they can escape the chaos of life and the chaos of cancer absolutely I mean you 
it's it's so quiet out here in the middle of i mean 315 is a highway that goes right by here and you can barely hear it and you hit the nail on the head where it's not just coming out and picking plants Mm -hmm. you know every time i come here i see there's that social identity Mm -hmm. uh, social support they 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 love being a part of the hope garden and i mean we may have different views i'm not a fan of the smell so i'm not a fan of the cows you definitely need some sort of filter but beyond that it's it's an incredible place to be and and to see to see you see that place is packed mm-hmm. with people that you, i mean how many people otherwise would have a garden in their backyard you know yeah you know and and you give them the opportunity to do that but it's not just is there's apple trees over there is there yeah, so there's an orchard there, and that is the orchard. And on the other side of that, we have uh, probably an acre and a half of squash. So what you're seeing right now is the main um, garden, and this is our research garden. So the Garden of Hope is actually a two-acre plot on this side. And as our studies have grown, we've needed more land. And the Garden of Hope started the first year in 2012 with, I would say, 50 survivors. Last year they had over, I think, 450. Wow. Tend orientations. So what I do is after we found from that focus groups, because I'm a researcher and we study the biology, I wanted to know if what they told us was, in fact, um, translating to indices of health. So what i've done since that time is take a subset of those survivors from the garden of hope and we study them so we draw their blood and we will um i can't tell you all the goodies that we're doing yeah because yeah we'll i can't <laughs> tell you but i will say that uh we um are collecting it's a mixed method so we are absolutely collecting um mental and physical health outcomes do you know what, as you're talking there, one of the coolest things for me as I look at this is how many people are limited to good quality food by financial situations. And you you allow them to come out here for free, receive education, receive cooking classes, mm-hmm. and get to pick vegetables for free. I mean, talk about you I mean, you talk about putting rubber to the road, that's that's it, you know, and that's what's right. so exciting to over four hundred and fifty, it's no mean research or not the impact that that's having in the community is incredible. Yeah, it really is. And I appreciate you acknowledging that. So what we've developed is- I'll take that $10 now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We um, have developed a theory-driven and evidence-based intervention and every year improve upon it and refine upon it and listen to our survivors. And, uh, you know, always though with the theory in mind and the evidence in mind. And so what we supply and what they've told us is that group education is very key. So it's not just about giving them the food because we've done that in other studies. They must have the education, and you of all people know that, of course, they must have that education to go along with that. So again, what we provide is group education and being here at Ohio State in this wonderful land grant opportunity, we have truly this unique ability to bring in the food scientists who we can bring in the horticulture folks and the people from you know Worcester who are actually working with the seeds to ensure that they are you know the highest amounts of phytochemicals possible and we can be growing what we know to be cancer fighting 
produce here and to give them a bountiful harvest that grows great here. We can be working with the food scientists on you know, the recipes and how to prepare this type of food. We can be working, we bring over the chef from the medical center and we actually create recipes with the dietitians and run it through all the nutrient analysis to ensure it's meeting the guidelines. And the chef prepares food that we harvested, our students harvested that very day and gets in there and gives them these wonderful, and you mentioned, I'm so glad you mentioned about the cost of food because, you know, cancer is an expensive disease. Yeah. And we find that many of the participants in our studies may not have been food insecure, but cancer has thrown them into some, you know, times of food insecurity. So we keep that in mind and then we teach them how to not just utilize the produce that they get here, but how to also shop with the budget in mind and ensure that they can eat a plant-based diet. does not have to be vegan, but a primarily plant-based diet is what we know to be, um, you know, an, an, I hate to say the word anti-cancer because there's no such diet or, or prescription for that. But what we're saying is we can truly adopt some of these recommendations that we know, backed by the evidence, are true and that can help to stave off cancer or to help folks who have had cancer to feel better, to get back to exercising appropriately, um, to be moving, and all those types of things. So, and to have a better quality of life, ultimately. I'll piggyback the, off of that because, as you were saying, the educational piece, I mean, er, we have a shared frustration in the standard of care in, in that eat a little bit better, work out more. And you're dealing with a diagnosis, dealing with trying to figure out how you're going to get around treatment or even transitioning into back to your normal life. The last thing you're thinking about if you're not active or don't already have these habits is is doing those things. So we throw a pamphlet at you and say, here you go. And it, it just isn't enough. So to come out here and see this garden and see, as you said, it's just, it's a perfect storm in terms of the, how many experts you can pull. As you said, you know, when I came over and I see the chef explaining how to shop for different types of food, how to cook certain ways, how to remove you know half the oil you're using and, and things like that and it's interactive and the participants are going with them and then you have dr folk coming over and doing behavioral work mm -hmm. and you know you've got clinton an md phd from harvard who's coming over to spend an hour of his time talking to these mm -hmm. people i mean you, you cannot put a price on a value i mean we should put a price on it and then put it in the standard <laughs> of care <laughs> but but it, it's invaluable in terms of it's not just a one and done and it's so often that's the case in standard of care and this really is a model that people could strive for in that it's it's an arduous process it's a long process but that's what it takes to see those outcomes mm -hmm. to, to work with them yeah and and you hit the nail on the head it's about changing dietary and physical activity patterns people's lives they don't realize and their ultimate health outcomes are often driven by decades and decades of specific dietary patterns that may or may not be wonderful right? And we know how hard it is to change behaviors. And so when someone has cancer, that's a life scare. And where we find that they are just like sponges and want to hear everything we want to say, it's both good and bad in that there's these, this teachable moment right after they come off cancer treatment and their care team that they've seen every day or three times a week with chemo or radiation or whatever it is says you're done well what does that mean where do you go 
Some of them go to a survivorship clinic. Some of them go back to their oncologist. Some of them go back to their primary care physician. But again, there's not a great system, at least where we are right at this moment. There's a lot of people trying different things, but there's not that standard of care. And when you're a sponge, it's fantastic if you're listening to the experts and the evidence. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. When you're a sponge that jumps on the internet, you and there's a lot of purveyors of misinformation that are trying to make money off people who are scared and who don't know where to turn and they have really good ads and all those types of things speaking of the boss the main man Here's Stephen Clinton has just walked outside Steve Steve, I am uh, I'm doing an interview with Colleen for my uh, Reach podcast where I talk about all things exercise and cancer health. Great. Can I ask you a brief question? Sure. If you had to give a snippet of information from your years of education, extensive experience, and just wealth of knowledge. Mm, a lot of pressure of, here. Yeah, exercise and cancer health. You know, what, what would you recommend? Wow. Evidence-based guidelines. So it's really simple. I mean, the science is telling us pretty much one uniform principle that uh, exercise, fitness, and good diet leads to longevity and a lower risk of cancer. You can't beat that. That's a, that's a snippet. You know? <laughs> Can you uh, actually, we regularly, regularly quote you in a lot of our talks in your frustration with uh, how much medical treatment costs versus maybe putting in the cost of an exercise program? Yeah, we suffer a lot from a healthcare system that can be labeled with many terms. One I like to use is dysfunctional. <laughs> and what we have is a healthcare system that is driven very much as a business model for profit as opposed to for health. And as a result, there's an enormous emphasis on treatment of established diseases as opposed to prevention of disease. And uh, we kind of have it backwards. <laughs> yeah. And this starts with really thinking about it from the very beginning and how do you organize your society in a way that uh, uh, starts with children and all through adolescence and uh, the prime of your life and the senior years. You know, how do we make the environment, the healthcare system, uh, the work environment all in sync for the same goal? See, you have the ability to say that. I don't have a job yet, so I can't. <laughs> I can't be that brave. <laughs> yeah, there's a thing. One thing about getting older is that you don't give a damn what somebody <laughs> thinks about what you say anymore. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's a brilliant. good quote. That's brilliant. And so the point is, is that you know, you know, at a certain point, yeah, you've seen enough science, you've seen enough data, and you have to call it as you see it. So while I have you talk about uh, the next study, and this is really unique in, in terms of actually prescribing red meat to cancer yeah. patient survivors. So what is the premise there? Obviously, red meat is a huge, huge hot topic right now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So I'm not going to talk about red meat from the perspective of environmental or sustainability issues. We're going to purely talk about it as a food and as a source of nutrients, okay? And I've had the privilege of 
being asked to serve with great people on several important uh, efforts, say Dietary Guidelines for America or the World Cancer Research Fund and their efforts to define guidelines for cancer prevention. And I have seen reams of data, largely associations from epidemiologic studies that continually point the finger at red meat as a potential uh, component of an unhealthy dietary pattern. And the other thing that I've come to realize in recent years is that we've been very good at thinking reductionist uh, in a reductionist way as to breaking down the diet to individual pieces. But what we've not been very good at is looking at dietary patterns as a whole. And the statisticians are beginning to come up with new tools and ways to do this. And the question that's evolved in my mind is this, is, is red meat really a risk factor for various chronic diseases, or is it merely a marker for a dietary pattern that is otherwise unhealthy. So uh, do people that eat more red meat happen to be the people who drink more sugar-sweetened beverages and don't have a diet rich in fruit and vegetables? So this study is really elegantly designed to provide a healthy diet for everyone. And then we've randomized the, the participants into two groups, one that gets 18 ounces of red meat per week and the other that's advised to follow the guidelines which are to reduce your intake of red meat and processed meats and so this is really one of the first studies that I've ever seen where we're asking can you eat a modest amount of red meat in the context of a healthy diet and have the same positive outcomes so it's enormously interesting and important and I have no idea what the results are going to be. So Beth was also, Beth Granger was also mentioning the idea of not just uh, uh, the red meat perspective but the idea of protein intake and yeah. and as you said the, the red meat and, and the myths around it are largely stemming from likely other unhealthy behaviours associated with it but including red meat at least that's in that 16 ounce may help improve the protein intake overall and potentially improve outcomes in terms of muscle mass and and physical function other outcomes like that down the line I mean red meat is a source of certain nutrients we need high quality protein zinc iron that's highly bioavailable and when you look at cancer patients who have just finished rigorous cancer therapy uh, these are some things that they may be depleted in and, and thus, in a setting of recovery from cancer therapy, a high-quality protein that's rich in certain nutrients as part of a healthy diet could be perfectly fine and, and potentially even an advantage. Tell you what, I think that just solves the podcast. It's over now. You know, we've done our job. We'll let you get back to work. All right. Hey, that was yeah, awesome. I'm going to stop by your office and bug you with many questions. <laughs> I what told him I went in there. I said, he took my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> they laughed. Hey, thanks, Dr. Clinton. All right, I'll be in a minute. All right, are we all done? Uh, no, sit back down.
Oh, I'm not. <laughs> but you said that was the end of the podcast. But well, he, he did a great job. Uh, he did so the best job. So he was talking about um, we we're kind of diving into the red meat myth yeah. and why that exists, the premise for the next study, and he was uh, explaining how not from only a protein intake perspective in, in increasing red meat and thus protein intake, but also from uh, a micronutrient perspective, which many cancer patients may need. So can you expand a little bit on that again, the premise of, of the red meat in, in the next study? And Well, we don't have funding for the next study yet, so. <laughs> Do you know, what are we doing? What's well, we have funding for this study. The next, is it not called the next study? Oh, I'm sorry, you meant, this is the next study. Yes, this is the next study, nutrition, <laughs> the, exercise. I thought you meant, well, he was, talking, he was talking last week about our next study. <laughs> next, next study. And I'm like, what did he tell you about well, that? Well, I told you I wanted an informal we podcast. <laughs> you got it. You got it with us. Yeah. So um, this is an incredibly important question because meat has been demonized by so many people but based on i'm sure he said sorry if i'm repeating anything but um you know basically epidemiological studies in which meat is really a surrogate for oftentimes other lifestyle behaviors that go along so a lot of people who eat large amounts of red meat also eat a lot of sodium of course, the red meat that many people eat in the U.S. is prime with a lot of saturated fats. It is certainly not in the sizes that is recommended or we know to be recommended serving sizes, which is the size of a deck of cards, three ounces. Not your 22-ounce T-bone. Not your 20. You're right. So you go into any restaurant and the smallest piece of beef you might find is maybe a six ounce sirloin but you're at an upper scale restaurant that even does that usually when you go in you get right 12 or 16 <laughs> ounces or whatever my husband calls the three ounce piece of meat a bite not a piece so but that's a whole different story when you marry a dietitian so um these are important questions because nobody has really conducted a study that we are aware of that has looked at this question and to ask, can in moderation and prepared correctly and low and USDA lean beef, can these, can beef fit into a healthy dietary pattern? And we actually hypothesize that it can. The other problems with not just the serving sizes and the types of highly saturated fat that many people in the US eat is also the the preparation methods and i'm not sure if steve clinton went into that at all but you know much of our meat is cooked at very high temperatures which produce known carcinogens like heterocyclic amines and polyaromatic hydrocarbons so we also take great care in this study to bring in the chef and we also brought in meat scientists and weber grills and we had an entire uh, week where we grilled vegetables, we grew, grilled red beef, we grilled chicken. We taught them safe cooking practices so that they could um, reduce those compounds in the cooking so they can enjoy their meat and cook it and marinate it and cook it in a flavorful and wonderful way that it's tender and it tastes palatable, but 
we know that we're not charboiling it either and producing those compounds that we know are associated with um, you know carcinogenic properties so we've done an amazing job pulling in the team we needed to pull in for this next study to ensure that we are really covering as best we can all those safe principles and practices and talking about moderation and what we give them in the meat group is actually three ounce servings already packaged in those so they don't have to weigh the meat they know it meets all the criteria of safe food hand you know safe food handling and also we teach them how to thaw properly and all those types of things so it's um it's a great thing i think the the results are going to be really exciting but it also speaks to the bigger picture of uh as you said there's a lot of kind of charlatans out there that will jump on whatever they can to kind of feed off it mm -hmm. and that results in people living in fear a lot of the times you know if you look at a patient or survivor that hears red meat causes cancer or red meat causes recurrence then that that has them 20 50 years in fear of ever eating red meat again and as you said some of the genetic mutations and and whatever the result of diet takes years to have an effect and and i think the important issue here is a piece of steak now and again as you say isn't going to kill you you know it takes mm -hmm. a long time so kind of speak about that in terms of how does that do for for people living in fear yeah, I, this gets back to that mental health aspect for sure, because we associate social events, we associate celebrations, we associate most everything with food and feasting and being around loved ones and people, right? And if you think about most events like that, typically the food at those events are rich in meat that are you know higher cuts of meat they're rich in sodium or their wings and beer or their cake and ice cream and not that i have a problem with any of those things but they are wrapped into a certain happy place right so to tell people who have just been through this life scare and have drastically altered part of their life and had just devastating treatment some of them to say no more of this or you can't enjoy that or we're taking this away I wouldn't want to live like that right and so many of our survivors because we know cancer is also often certainly a disease of aged they grew up moving more and not having to worry about so much of what they ate, right? And what we are doing as a society is moving a lot less and actually eating more volume than folks did back then by the supersizing and all those types of things. We also find that we have gotten out of touch with cooking and food preparation and it's become a chore when it used to be, I mean, I'm much older than you, but I remember <laughs> my mom back in the day, like enjoying cooking and preparing and meals and making, and my dad had a big garden out back and all those things. But when you think about even going home tonight, and it's gonna be for you seven or eight o'clock at night probably, you know, 
the thought of preparing a home-cooked meal or dealing with that often is just too much for some people who are working two jobs or they are food insecure and they find it more convenient to run through a drive-through or to have a bowl of cereal or whatever it is. So part of what our study has done is reconnect people with joy in food again and in preparing it and enjoying it and they tell us that and it's just so amazing and especially some of our older ones who said you know what this study has brought me back to recalling life way before cancer when I was cooking with my grandma or we were harvesting corn and it's just they said you know what I pulled out old recipes and so they're trying new things so you know we've lost kind of the art of food loving food in all those ways and this has reconnected people that way you know we went out as scientists to get the biology right but what it's teaching us is so beyond that and it's so hard to capture too you know yes. when you when you publish this nice nice polished manuscript yeah. you you can't talk about mary who who hadn't cooked in 10 years and is back doing it right. with her family and i think it's it's got to speak magnitudes to the power it has to them to as you said they're dealing with a lot of misinformation but they're coming to this thing with some of the country if not the world's best experts on various cancer topics and to hear that it's not a it's not a case of good food bad food Mm-mm. it's it's a case of here are your options here's how to fit them into your lifestyle and that is huge because mm-hmm. it takes away the guilt of i can't have this you know and and you can have your cake mm-hmm. let's figure out how we can fit it in that's you know right. and that's where you'll never this podcast will never be famous if i say we had Colleen Spees on and she said eat in moderation and make a fit your lifestyle. You know, that's we, no fun. We have that's to not have sexy. The special <laughs> alkaline diet that's gonna cure cancer, yeah. you know. Um yeah. it it's not the sexy thing, but it's the thing that more often than not is the long term sees mm-hmm. the long term benefits. That's right. And you know, we find that when we take some of that pressure off our survivors and say, just you know, all we're asking you to do is come to some classes, go harvest some produce, right? But when they get here, we provide them with the education and they're big people and they can choose what they want to do or not do, right? And what we find is some will say, you know what, I'm not ready. I, I'm not, I, I get I'm supposed to walk 150 minutes, you know, or 10,000 steps or if you want to do steps or minutes or how to translate. I'm not ready to do that yet. But you know what, I'm going to harvest some of this produce. And what we find is they, they start eating some of the produce, enjoying it, once they know how to cook it, how to harvest it and all that. And when they have those successes and enjoy it, then they go, you know what? I'm gonna try to walk 5,000 steps this week, right? You know, every day this week or three times this week. And we say, that's awesome, right? We actually never set out for this study necessarily to be any weight loss type of study. We recruited for the next study, we recruited overweight and obese cancer survivors because we knew they are more likely to have um, poor prognosis, to have recurrence of cancer. We know that body fat 
is associated higher levels with poor outcomes. So we thought, you know what, let's up the ante. We're gonna bring out our most vulnerable, right? And we did. But I will tell you, with the pilots and with this study, you know, we, we won't have the final results, but they wear a Fitbit, they log their weights, and I will tell you, it becomes, we see this beautiful weight loss, and in both our pilots prior to this, um, we saw significant decrease in body composition and in body mass index and in waist circumference. You know, we didn't set out that, that to be our primary outcome. We set out to say, can we help survivors improve their adherence to the evidence-based guidelines, of which there are several, sure. as you know. Yeah. And But what we find is when they start to have successes, they go, I'm going to go for that guideline next. I'm going to go for that guideline next. And over the course of a few months, they just go there when they're not forced or pushed, but they're supported. It's huge when you talk about taking the pressure off and just enjoying the process. I mean, we see the same thing in our exercise trials. In, in if we do a weight loss trial, we do weekly check-ins and weight. And from our perspective, merely tracking progress. We, you know, we understand that it's going to fluctuate, but they'll come in and it's almost like uh, a child handing in a half-done piece of homework. They're like, I, di I didn't lose a pound. Yeah, going, yeah. It's okay, yeah. you know? Similar to, to the diet, you're going to have those weeks where you're working 70 hours and you can't. Mm -hmm. But understanding that that overall process, you're going to have peaks and valleys, mm -hmm. but as long as the trend is in the right direction, it's, it's massive. That's right. And the, I tell them, I say, you know, you won't hear from me. I, the few times I said, if you hear from me, it's bad news because <laughs> that means I've seen you've lost too much weight too quickly or you've tried to increase your steps too quickly. You know, because we're looking about goals you can, that are sustainable. We're looking about things that you're willing to adopt and make your new pattern, right? If you say, we don't want you doing anything. If you say, I'll, I'll do it six months of study, that's why we're measuring them a year out, right? Yeah. We don't want them to do anything for a six-month study. We want you to adopt what you will and what you can and what you're willing and works into your lifestyle and your means and, you know, put all the barriers, what you can do that you are going to make your own and create a new pattern for yourself. And that's exactly what we do. But so they get a call from me. It's <laughs> what are you doing? You've lost too much weight. Like we know that's not, cannot physiologically be body fat when you're losing it, sure. you know, right? Yeah. Those are the calls I have to make. So, um, yeah. And the, the interesting thing about that is it's, uh, what you you'll recommend you have certain guidelines you recommend and you know whether it's a, a plant-based diet or even including the red meat the level of which people incorporate that into their lives is going to look different for every single person some people will say i love eating fruit and fruits mm -hmm. and veg i'll have five servings of each mm -hmm. other people say i hate vegetables but i like fruits all so it's really important to understand that people will again it comes back to the guilt it's like i hate broccoli but i have to eat broccoli and i have to eat find out what you like and and that's what i love about some of the, the the work the chef's done is that he's brought in really unique foods and the variety of foods and you may not like 10 weeks of the cooking but that 11th and 12th week is like that's it that's, that's what right. i was waiting for and that's huge that's right that's right it's we've been um it's just been so much fun with that last week we had I had mentioned that we've got this beautiful squash garden 
you would call it a yard. <laughs> we got to be on the other side of the orchard. And um, we grew edible squash and pumpkins. You know, a lot of people think of the carving pumpkins coming up sure. at, you know, Halloween, and that's all great. But, you know, we aren't really trained to eat the flesh from those pumpkins, right? Maybe somebody will pull out the seeds and maybe roast those up or whatever. But we grew 11 different varieties and brought them in here and cooked them all up and showed them all how to do that and gave them recipes to take home. And they got to take home the wealth of it. And we now will continue that all through the month of October. And we've got a cold storage bin full of beautiful edible squash. So it's thinking of food differently too. And also to explore food. We've also done, you know, everything in life is supply and demand and consumer demand. And it's a shame in that, you know, right now in the U.S., if you go to any typical grocery store, you'll basically see about five types of potatoes, right? There used to be hundreds of varieties yeah. of potatoes, yeah. right? And what happens is, you know, we subsidize farmers for yield. And when people are demanding russet or Yukon gold, that's what they're going to grow, right? And they've got to earn a living as well. But out here what we do is also plant things, the, the purple anthocyanin-rich potatoes. Or we're growing eggplant, white eggplant. So we are really growing the rainbow and things they've never seen. Purple and white kohlrabi. You know, things that take people out of their normal space and then they go hunting for it because you can find it at farmer's markets often. You can find it in some of our supermarkets. You just, people just don't look for them often. So it's so much fun to do that. And we also turn the head on, we've been asked many times on, you know, do you do a culturally sensitive, you know, or are you planting certain things or ethnic type foods for people? And we don't. And the reason we don't is we want people to be adventurous eaters and we want them to eat outside their culture and outside their exposure and outside of what they normally do. And there is such joy in seeing, um, we, we this year piloted a, pediat a childhood cancer survivor garden as well. So we did that this year. And it's such joy in seeing people try something they've never eaten before. That's incredible. I mean, even the the childhood aspect, mm -hmm. how many kids do you know that have access to a garden? You know, and and uh, I can't with with their parents out there as well. I can't imagine what that's like to mm -hmm. to give them that positive aspect in their life. It's such a difficult time. It's I'm mm -hmm. sure it's really really powerful to watch. Yeah, there's uh, some tears on the last day for <laughs> sure, but it's amazing. We had. Um, children come out who were just off of active treatment and like one of the little girls eight years old had had two bouts of brain cancer and you know these parents have been through some hell and to bring them out again to this place where they can harvest with their child and have an experience together that's not sitting by their child while they're getting a spinal tap or a treatment yeah. and they can be at this happy place and to have a little bit of education and cook them oh, up a wonderful meal and to send them home with big bags of produce, it's, 
it's the most meaningful work ever. It really is. So, um, you said you couldn't talk for 20 minutes. Oh. And we're coming up on 50. So, we'll definitely have to do part two because I told you we could talk for hours. Um, for people in Columbus, because this is huge, how can they find out about the Garden of Hope and how, if you're a survivor, how can they get involved with it? Mm-hmm. So, we have a website. Um, it is go.osu.edu backslash hope. They could probably put in the Garden of Hope and find us at Ohio State sure. somehow. And um, just come visit us. So you mentioned uh, survivors in the area have to, they have to participate in a registration event also? So survivors who want to come out and harvest, and they don't have to be in a study to do that. They don't have to be treated at the Ohio State University for their cancer. It's a community garden. That is huge. They can be, that's right. They can uh, participate in the Garden of Hope by going to the website for James Care for Life. And they have a Garden of Hope orientation every year. Well, they have multiple ones that start usually in... Uh, April and May, and they can come. They, all they have to do is come to a, like a one-hour orientation and find out the rules and get their little bag and get signed up, and then they can come out and harvest once a week for the growing season. So I'll repeat that. If you're not in a study, you don't have to participate in a study, and if you're not receiving treatment at Ohio State, you can still come out. And I heard about the Garden Hope for about two years before I finally came out here, and I, I cannot tell you the impact that it's having and, and the power of being out here amongst other survivors and patients. And, and I mean, Colleen and our team are fantastic. So if you're in the area, just stop by just once, just see how you like it and hold your nose when you come out uh, or bring some sort of face mask for the cows. Um, oh, stop. But beyond that, it's incredible if you uh, can tolerate the smell. Now, listen, I, I appreciate, I mean, Colleen, your, your passion for it is, is so evident and I love talking to like-minded people and, and I'll definitely be pestering you for, for part two fairly soon. Well, you're taking home some edible squash. I'm glad you said squash and not just edibles. <laughs> we'll be having a completely different conversation. I'll happily take home some squash. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Colleen, listen, thanks again for all, you your, all your time. It was fun.